Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. So open your Bibles, would you, to 2 Kings chapter 9 as we continue our verse-by-verse study in the book of 2 Kings. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Elisha, the prophet, called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, get yourself ready. Take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. Now when you arrive in that place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat. And just so you know, this Jehoshaphat in verse 2 is not the same Jehoshaphat of the king of Judah. So you can keep it all sorted out. So go find Jehu, uh, the son of Nimshi, and go in, uh, son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, go in and make him rise up from among his, his associates, take him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head and say, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not delay. And so the young man and the servant of the prophet went to Ramoth Gilead, And when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting, and he said, I have a message for you, O commander. And Jehu said, For which one of us? And he said, For you, commander. And then he arose, went into the house, poured the oil on his head, and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over over the people of the Lord over Israel. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, and I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets." and the blood of, the, of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. Verse 8. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. And I will make of the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. The dog shall eat Jezebel in the vicinity of Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. Can you imagine that? Just go in, take care of business, and get out. (laughs) Verse 11. Then Jehu came out to the servants of his master, and one of them said, Is all well? Why did this madman come to you? And he said to them, You know the man and his babble. And they said, A lie. Tell us now. And so he said, Thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. And then each man hastened to take his garment, put it up under on the top of the steps, and they blew, blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. Now don't forget, again, our, our focus has been on Elisha. Uh, God has turned to Elisha so that we can follow his ministry. But the backdrop of the ministry of Elisha is to the divided kingdom between Judah and Israel and how most of the kings throughout this time period, this history, have abandoned God and the people have jumped headlong into idolatry. And Jehu here is a reminder that God hasn't forsaken his people. He is still giving them the leaders that are needed or the leaders that will be in that place of kingship that he hasn't abandoned them and he hasn't forgotten them. I think that's really encouraging. He hasn't forgotten what Ahab has done, and he hasn't forgotten what Jezebel has done, and 
vengeance will be exacted. Isn't that what the Bible says? Some of you have situations in your life right now where the temptation is to take vengeance into your own hands and to take care of the situation yourself. And you've got an idea of how to take care of it. And you've got an idea of what will make you feel good in exacting the kind of vengeance that you want. But the Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And isn't that one of the hardest things to do is just to back off and let the Lord do what he wants to do, when he wants to do it. We're so quick to defend ourselves and so quick to answer every accusation and so quick to answer every issue and all the gossip that's out there. Just let the Lord take care of it. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You have enough in your own life, do you not, to just keep your eyes firmly fixed on the Lord. He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. And you don't need any more distractions. You don't need any more things taking your mind off the Lord because if you take your mind off of the things of God, then the perfect peace that comes is gonna dissipate and you'll be all in turmoil. And so vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and God is setting it up. Elisha gets this young prophet, someone who responds to him. I like that. I have it underlined in verse one, one of the sons of the prophets. It wasn't two, it wasn't three. He called one and one came. And I I like that, as God calls to us, he calls to us one at a time. And I pray that we would respond one at a time. So Elisha tells him, go in, find Jehu, anoint him king, and get out of Dodge. And that's exactly what he did. And I like this in the life of Jehu now, because Jehu is there with his commanders, he's in a group, and suddenly, suddenly, what they believed to be a madman, because it must have been really, you know, an amazing thing to see. Coming in, taking care, and then he's taken off, you know, so they just see him come into a private room, and they see him come in, and they see him run out, and they go, what's this madman doing? That's how, that was what his appearance was. But you gotta put yourself in Jehu's shoes for a moment and just think how quick this happened. He was just going through life, just doing what he would do pretty much every day speaking to his commander, speaking to those that were serving with him, and immediately this guy comes in, and all of this happens suddenly in the life of Jehu. He didn't really know how his day was going to unfold, and yet he received it from the Lord. He accepted it. And I believe it's always good for us to remain open to the fresh, new work of God in our lives at any time, on any day. It seems as if day become monotonous and mundane and filled with all kinds of little tasks and little things that we do repetitively all the time. And I believe if we're not careful, all the mundaneness of life will desensitize us to the work of God in our lives and how suddenly something can happen, how quickly things can change. And it's always good to remain open to the work of God in our lives at any moment because His will is not something that we can schedule into our lives. It's not that Jehu can say, okay, we're gonna go through this, we're gonna have this meeting, and then out of the blue, this madman's gonna come in and anoint me king. We'll we'll put that at one o'clock. It's not that we need to be open. Jot this down, let me read it to you. Jot it down, in 2 Timothy chapter four, Paul tells, tells young Timothy something that is very good for us to be reminded. Listen, 2 Timothy chapter four, verse two. He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. He tells young Timothy, in the ministry, Timothy, be ready in season and out of season 
to preach the word. Stay in a place of readiness. And the idea of in season and out of season is when you expect it and when you don't expect it. When you're ready for it, you know, when you're kind of expecting something to come, it'd be, be ready for the appointments, but also be ready when it's not an appointment, when something happens suddenly, where the Holy Spirit descends upon you and has a new fresh work for you or a new direction or, or you were going in one direction and God says, I want you to go in this direction or you had an appointment, but then your schedule had to change and just be ready in season and out of season. I like that phrase. It's something that I impress upon the men and women that serve alongside of me often. Be ready in season and out of season. What that looks like for a young man that wants to move into the ministry and wants to maybe become a teacher or exercise the gift of teaching, I I tell them and and I, I say that you should be ready at any time to take your Bible, open it up, and share from it without any notes. You should be able to open up the Bible read a scripture, give the sense of it, give the, and just, you know, you go, I don't know, Ed, I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I don't know what it says, and I'm not sure. What, and and I, you just depend upon the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you can be so overprepared that you're more dependent upon your notes than you are the Holy Spirit. Not that your notes couldn't be used by God. Of course they could, because you were praying and preparing them at some time. And yet, the moment, God is always moving in the moment, And I'm reminded of that in my own life because as a pastor, in order to accomplish all that I want to accomplish, in order to to have appointments and to meet with people, and in order to do all the things that are really fun in the ministry, I have to study really, really hard. And one of the things that I like to do is I like to get ahead in my studies. I like to be a few weeks ahead because that way, because I, first of all, I don't operate very well last minute. I don't like that pressure. Some of you love the last minutes. I don't thrive on the last minute. Uh, I I like to be prepared and ready. Uh, And and so I prepare weeks in advance. And and I'm praying in the moment, and I'm going through the text, and I'm jotting down the notes, and and then right before I deliver it, I pull it out, I edit it up, I prepare it for it. But then when I deliver it, whether it's in this congregation, or I have the privilege of being at a conference, or doing a workshop, or even teaching at another church, I wanna be in the moment because the group is different. I'm praying for you when I'm studying, but I don't know who's gonna be here. I don't know what's going on in your life on this particular day in this particular moment. And then there's the, 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 the thought of, man, this is gonna be on the internet, so somebody's gonna be listening to it at any time during the day or night. And then it's going to be cut up and edited uh, in order to air on the radio around the country. And then that's going to air. Who knows when this study is going to air, but it's going to air at just the right time for someone with just the right word so that God will be able to use it. And even uh, a special word from the Lord or a new direction or a new application is going to be, not in my notes, is going to be used by God in the moment. And we need to be ready in season and out of season. For a guy that's teaching the Bible, for a gal that's going to teach the Bible, you should be able to in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the moment, suddenly, be called upon, open up your Bible and start telling telling us what it says and what does God mean by it and what is his will for our lives from the text. We should be able to do that. We shouldn't be so caught up in, now, don't misunderstand me. I do believe uh, the Bible teaches us to study, to show ourselves approved, but I have met people that have studied the Holy Spirit right out of the Bible. 
They've studied it completely where now it's just their relationship with their notes and they forgot that it's God's will to meet with his people, not the pastor's will to meet with his notes. You say, Ed, what does that have to do with me? Because that's pretty much not what I do most of the time. Good question. You and I should be ready in season and out of season for whatever God has for us. We shouldn't be shocked and surprised that some new person started to work with us, that somebody stole our parking space at Safeway or whatever, whatever it might be. I, I don't know if you guys saw recently, but our friend John Moreland, did you guys see that on the news? The brother's doing a funeral across town because he's in the honor guard. John Moreland is a pastor friend of ours, Denver Bible Christian Church, uh, and he's been here many times to share. He's doing a memorial over at the cemetery at, in the honor guard. He's in the honor guard. That's what he does. He's still uh, in the reserves. And while he's, doing some, while he's doing the service in the honor guard, somebody came into the cemetery and ripped his car off, drove right out of the cemetery with it with all of his notes, with all of his, his every, everything that was in there, uniforms, his computer, everything was in there. And the brother was at ready in season and out of season because he didn't plan that day to be interviewed by the news. And he didn't plan that day to have people begin to talk to him about, well, how do you feel and what's going on? And he didn't plan that day, but he was ready in season and out of season. And, and just like a pastor, just like a Bible teacher can study the Holy Spirit out of the Bible, so can a believer plan the Holy Spirit out of your life and be so caught up in your own plans and your own thoughts and whatever's, got, whatever's on your plate today that you're not open like Jehu is to the sudden work of God in your life. The sudden work. Be ready in season when you're expecting it. Because I think when we come to a gathering like this, we come expecting to hear from the Lord. And those of you that came expecting to hear from the Lord, you're going to hear from God. God's going to minister to your heart. The Word of God is going to speak to you, encourage you, exhort you, convince you, all of the things that the God, Word of God does. But what about when you don't expect it? What about when you go to work? I don't think you so much go to work expecting to hear from God. Now, some of you might protest. Well, wait a minute, Ed. You know, I work at the church. Well, okay, so not you. Not you, but, but I mean, in, in the mundane things of life, I don't know how much you're going into your cubicle going, I want to hear from God today. Some of you are like, you go into your cubicle and go, man, I just want to make it through the day. I just want to make it through. I just want to make it through all the people I'm going to see today and all the things and all that meeting and all, I just want to make it through the day. You need to be ready in season and out of season because God is on the move everywhere. His word is alive. The psalmist describes it in Psalm 119 that the word of God is running swiftly. I love that, swiftly. And so we're ready in season, out of season. Living life with a readiness, an openness, and a willingness for all that God has for you when it's expected and when it's not. So for Jehu, he becomes the 10th king of Israel and he ends up reigning for 28 years. This sudden change in his life changed the course of his life for the next 28 years for the rest of his life. Now, go back to verse six for a second. In verse six it says, then he arose and went into the house and he poured oil on his head. <clears throat> and this is no, when you come up for the anointing of oil, you know, when the Bible says any one of you is sick, come to call the elders and we'll anoint you with oil. We, we have little containers over here and we'll put oil on our hand and we'll anoint your forehead and some pastors use more, some pastors use less, but it's a drop, two or three. We don't have a big thing of Crisco oil over here that we're gonna open up and we're gonna pour over your head. 
That's what's happening here. He is being anointed. It is not just a little dab of oil on his forehead. There is a flask of oil symbolizing the anointing of God upon his life into this place of being king. And it's happening, you know, suddenly. It's just all happening one after another. And he says, and I like what he says. This is what I want you to mark. He says, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. Would you mark that? I have anointed you the king over the people of Jehovah, of the Lord. Anytime you see in your new King James, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the translator's way of letting us know that that word is Jehovah. Jehovah. This is the Lord. He's, you're over the people of the Lord. It, it would be me, easy to miss this verse and read right past it, except we need to pause here and consider what he's saying. It's not just over Israel, but of the people of the Lord. Now, at this stage in the lives of these people, were they truly worshiping Jehovah? Yes or no? The answer is no. They're worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth. They they have forsaken God, these people of Jehovah. It would have been better to say, I'm going to anoint you king over the people of Baal over Israel. My covenant people, my covenant people that are worshiping idols. And and God would have been able, as, as this servant came to Jehu, it would have been an accurate thing to call them idolatrous. Israel long ago, from this point in history, forsook God and turned their back on God. Under the leadership of Ahab and Jezebel and even before that, they were worshiping Baal. You remember Elijah said, and I quote, you know they've killed your servants and your prophets and I, only I am left and they're trying to kill me when he was discouraged, when he was. And the Lord said, I have 7,000 that I've reserved, but for the most part, the nation had, been, had forsaken God. I've got a few thousand people that follow me. It was encouraging for Elijah. He needed to know that. But considering the millions of people in the, in the nation, you only got 7,000? That few? And the fascinating thing here is that God's not forsaking his people. He's not forsaking his people. It's so encouraging to remember the faithfulness of God to his people. And if he was faithful to the, to the covenant people in the old covenant... Like Paul says, I always like, how much more for those of you by faith in Jesus Christ that have been blessed and forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ to the one that God promised, I'll never leave you or forsake you. There are those that maybe have forsaken the Lord some time back, but the Lord has not forsaken them. God hangs on. The Spirit of the Lord continues to call back into fellowship, to call back to repentance. God doesn't let go so easily. The Lord hangs on even long after we've been guilty of forsaking him. But God doesn't forsake his people. He doesn't forsake us. What a beautiful thing it is to me that God still says, they're my people. I'm going to anoint you king over my people. And he still has this covenant relationship with those that turn their back on him. He still acknowledged them. As he, you know, you're, you might be listening to this Bible study right now and you've forsaken the Lord. You've turned your back on God. You are still, you might still consider yourself, well, you know, I'm still part of the church, 
but in your lifestyle and practices, in your sinful decisions, you've forsaken the Lord. And what does God do? God continues to pursue you. He continues to wait for you. He continues to express his love to you. And the problem is, is that as you forsake God, you think it's not going to end in some kind of consequence. That you can always come back. You know, God will always forgive me. You know, I know if I sin, God will always forgive me. Yeah, yes, you're right. In the blood of Jesus Christ, God will forgive you. But the consequences, they don't go away so quickly. And you know, God's forgiveness comes so quickly, but the people you're burning and the people you're messing around with and the people you're hurting, they're not so quick to forgive. It's painful for them what you're doing. It's painful the decisions you're making. And yet, we're reminded that God, he sets the pattern. And remember, in verse 7, he was told, this is what you need to do, Jehu. You need to strike down the house of Ahab and go after Jezebel. And, you know, what's going to happen to Jezebel? Uh, as she, in verse 10, Jezebel is going to be eaten by dogs. That's a nice bedtime story for your kids tonight. <clears throat> in the vicinity of Jezreel, and there's not going to be anybody there for her. Dogs are going to eat her up. Verse 14 now. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram had been defending Ramoth Gilead, he and all Israel, against Haziel, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had inflicted upon him, and when he fought with Haziel, king of Syria. And Jehu said, if you're so minded, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it in Jezreel. So Jehu rode in a chariot, went to Jezreel, for Joram was laid up there, and Ahaziah, the king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. Now, verse 17, a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came, and he said, see, a company of men. And Joram said, get a horseman and send him to meet him, and let him say, is it peace? So the horseman went to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what have I to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. And the watchman reported saying, the messenger went to them, but he's not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered, what have, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. And the watchman reported saying, he went up to them and is not coming back. And the drive, driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. So Joram said, make ready, and his chariot was made ready. And then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Jehu and met him on the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now it happened, when Joram saw Jehu, that he said, is it peace, Jehu? So he answered, what peace, as long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many? And Joram turned around and fled and said to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah. Now Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jehoram between his arms, and the arrow came out at his heart, and he sank down in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, Pick him up and throw him into the tract of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely, verse 26, I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord. Now, therefore, take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. Well, Joram is the first one to go. 
And notice that he was wounded in the battle at Ramoth Gilead and visited by Ahaziah, the king of Judah. They didn't know yet that Jehu is the new king of Israel. And so it's about 45 miles travel, not, not 45 minutes like you and I would travel. Well, there's some time to get there. And a couple of watchmen come and meet Jehu. And they ask this question, is it peace? Or in the Hebrew, is, is it, are you coming for shalom? And that's a good question to ask. Jehu answers, what, is, what do we have to do with peace? I haven't come in peace. And then he's met by two kings in the royal chariot. One's well, and then what is it? A well-directed arrow ends Joram's life. And I was just reminded in Ephesians chapter 6 that you and I are encouraged to put on the full armor of God so that we can withstand all of the schemes and the attacks of the enemy. That the enemy shoots his arrows at us as well. And they're well aimed and they come with such great force. I'm amazed personally at the kind of force that a bow can send an arrow, and the kind of preciseness. This, this was a precise shot right through the heart, and he dies on the land that Ahab and Jezebel, remember, literally stole from Naboth. And there is retribution. And this was a prophecy, if you're jotting it down, that was fulfilled from 1 Kings chapter 21. Now, before we move forward in the rest of the chapter, we need to consider this issue of peace, of shalom, the Hebrew greeting. Jehu had the right concept, the right perspective, that as long as you've got all this corruption going on in your land, how can there be peace? As long as you have all of this idolatry and all of these, how can you possibly enjoy the peace of God? As long as there's so much satanic worship, as long as there's so much witchcraft and all this sexually charged false worship, worshiping false gods, there simply cannot be peace. There, there can't be peace in our land. There can't be peace in our world with the existence of the corruption of sin. It must be forsaken. Now, you can say that you have peace and you can say that you experience peace, but truth be told, the peace that, that what you're calling peace is simply appeasement, pushing down the very fact and the reality. See, you don't need, you and I, those of us that are born again, you do not need a pastor to tell you of your own sin. You don't need a pastor to tell you. The Holy Spirit lives in you and continually reminds you of the sin in your life, continually reveals it to you. It might start with a soft whisper and it might move forward and like be a loud voice. Of, what are you doing and why are you doing this? And don't go there and what are you doing here? And on and on the voice of God comes. But there does come a place where you and I can so stifle the Holy Spirit, we can so grieve the Holy Spirit we, that, we, that our own conscience will be seared, like the Bible says, like with a hot iron, and we become numb to the regularity and habitual sin in our lives. And what you call peace actually is just a numbness of your life and your distance from God. How can there be peace with that in your life? Is a question we have to ask ourselves. How can you truly enjoy the peace that passes all understanding with that in your life? 
how is it possible for you? And, and some of you might be saying, well, you know, wait a minute, I have these times of peace. No, it's not peace at all. It's not from the Lord. He's waiting. What do I have to do with peace? What's true in a land or in a country is true in our personal lives. There can be no real peace in our lives as long as there's sin that has gone unconfessed. It will simply trouble your heart and it'll trouble your heart to the point where you won't let it trouble your heart anymore. Instead of ending it and coming back to the Lord, instead of cutting it off, Jesus said if your right hand causes you to sin, say thank you to your right hand. He doesn't say that. He says cut it off. Deal radically with radical sin. You don't need to pray about it. You don't need to search the scriptures about it. You don't need to ask all your friends of what you should do. The Holy Spirit's telling you what to do. Cut it out. Get rid of it. Stop it. You will not experience true peace. What you think is peace right now is really just appeasement and numbness. And you're not really experiencing the presence of God at all. He's waiting for you to come back. James put it this way in James chapter 1, verse 5. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to, lib- to all liberally without reproach. It will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Think of that, a double-minded, you and I can be double-minded simply in our prayer lives, just trying to ask God for something, but without faith. Like you and I, and and I, I don't know about you, but I've been here many times. I understand what James says. I get it. Praying from God, but then I'm praying and like my faith is undermined and I'm trusting God. And, and in that moment, the Bible says that if I'm praying to God, asking for wisdom, but I'm, I'm not really exercising faith and trusting him, then I'm a double-minded man. And if I don't end that pretty soon, I'm going to be unstable, not in some of my ways, but in all my ways. Now, if you and I could be double-minded in a spiritual exercise of praying to God, and really seeking God, and the circumstances of our life are undermining our faith, and so we're praying to God, but we're kind of having a hard time believing he's gonna answer. If you and I can be double-minded in seeking God through prayer, how much double-mindedness do you think there is when you are living in unconfessed, hidden sin in your life? I would say a lot. And some of you are just not willing to admit it. Oh no, that's just a little compartment of my life. Well, man, it's just like one rotten apple, man. It ruins it all. It's like, yeah, you know, I just want one roach in my cereal. That's it. Just one roach. No big deal. I'll shake it out. Maybe the kids will get it tomorrow. Is that it? Is that it? You just take the cereal, one roach, it's 50% off, King Supers. Just one little mouse swimming in the milk. Is that all? You pull a gallon off the shelf, and there it is. So oh, we'll just take it out. I'll eat the rest of the milk. No, it ruins it all, man. It's gone. Get a refund. Take it back. And so it should be in our own lives. I don't, I don't want to be unstable in all my ways, and I don't want to be double-minded. And one of the ways I can assure that in my life is just to come clean with the Lord with things in my life and not hold on to anything and unconfessed sin and just be clean with him. So and so often, if you were to ask God tonight for wisdom in your current situation, so often the answer of wisdom from God is to deal radically with the sin that's in your life. And then you ask again, 
deal radically with the sin that's in your life. Yeah, but Lord, you don't understand. I just need this and I want this wisdom. Here's wisdom from heaven. Deal with that sin in your life. I've been telling you that for six months. I've been telling you that for six weeks. Deal with the sin in your life. So many wonder often why there's that check in their spirit or that trouble in their minds. Could it be that sin needs to be brought out into the open and confessed? The Lord is ready to receive you. The Lord is ready to forgive you. The Lord is ready to restore you. He's ready to clean you up. You know, we take that Christian soap in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Restore to us the mind that we've given up and we've surrendered. As we were learning this weekend, you know, by sin, the title deed of the earth was given over to the devil. And so often in, well, in, in sin that's unconfessed, the title deed of your life has been handed over and you start living for the things of the devil. There are things in the Bible that, that God calls wicked, evil, that can enter our lives, that we can bring into our lives, that we would be a part of, that will wreck our lives. So we gotta wash up all the time. We gotta regularly take showers with 1 John 1, 9. We need to be clean before the Lord. He's the one that cleans. We're the ones that confess. We're the ones that come to him humbly. So Joram's taken out. And there's not going to be peace. Verse 27 now. But when Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the road to Beth Hagan. So Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him also in the chariot. And they did so at the ascent to Gur, which is by Ibliam. And he fled to Megiddo, and he died there. You guys go to Israel with us. We go up to Mount Carmel. We have this overlook, and you're able to see the whole valley of Megiddo. You can go to Megiddo. We'll go to Megiddo as well, and you see a whole different place, a whole different vantage point of this huge valley. And it says in verse 28, his servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem, buried him in the tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the 11th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah became king over Judah. And Ahaziah takes off, Jehu takes him out too, another precise arrow, verse 30. When Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. Then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? And he looked up at the window and said, Who's on my side? Who? And two or three eunuchs looked out on him. And then he said, throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank. And then he said, go now, see to this accursed woman and bury her, for she, has a, she, she was a king's daughter. And they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. I wonder why. Why do you guys think? That was pretty quick. Verse 36, they came back and told him and said, this is the word of the Lord which he spoke by the servant Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, on the plot of ground, Jezreel dogs will eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as of refuse on the surface of the field in the plot of Jezreel so that they shall not say, here lies Jezebel. Now, this is a disgusting sight that I have seen a version of this, not with a human, 
people. One time as we were serving in Cairo, Egypt, serving in the slums there in the, the places where the believers were, we were, we were delivering food, I saw, it was the most disgusting thing. I, I don't, it just jumped into my mind. It's not in my notes. This is from the Lord. No, it's from me. So I saw a dog eating another dead dog. And it's just making my stomach turn thinking about it right now. Think about how it was with Jezebel and how fast it happened where God, his word, came true. Jezebel, history tells us that she was a very attractive woman. And here she is putting on, she's painting her eyes and adorning her head and looking out a window. This suggests perhaps that she wants to seduce this man and take advantage of, of the weakness of a man and put on, you know, put on, uh, paint the house and take care of everything and get it all ready to take advantage. It reminded me of something. It may have reminded you as you read through. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. As Solomon is writing, he warns men to be careful of this particular Proverbs 7 woman. Proverbs 7 is where I want you to turn. Here we have Jezebel. History tells us a very attractive woman and she sees, she sees Jehu and she starts painting it up. And in verse 1 it says, My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live. My law is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. And call to understanding your nearest kin. That they may keep you from the immoral woman. From the seductress who flatters with her words. For I, at, the, at the window of my house, I looked up, and I saw the simple, perceived among the youths, a young man devoid of understanding, passing by her corner, took the path to her house at night, in the black, dark night. And there, verse 10, a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart, loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay home. Sometimes she was outside, verse 12, sometimes in the open square, lurking at every corner. And so she caught him and kissed him. And with an impudent face, she said to him, I have peace offerings with me. Today I've paid my vows. Here's a, an, a harlot who is very spiritual. So I came out, verse 15, to meet you, to seek your face, and I found you. Spread my bed with tapestry, color, uh, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I perfumed my bed. Come, let us take, verse 18, our fill of love until morning. Let's decide, delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the appointed day. And with her enticing speech, she caught him. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately, he went after her. How? As an ox goes to the slaughter, as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till an arrow struck his liver and a bird hastens to the snare. He did not know it would take his life. Therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she's cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Be careful of the Jezebel. I believe that the application is clear for 
Men to, the, the teaching is clear, men avoid these women, but the application is clear, women avoid these men. And women don't become a Proverbs 7 woman, and men don't become a Proverbs 7 man. Sex is to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. And that's it. And those that are married, those that are single, there's always someone looking to take advantage of you. And like an ox to the slaughter, just walking through. And here's Jezebel getting all prettied up for Jehu. And she changes tactics a little bit in verse 31 because you have to do a little bit of searching, but she mentions as Jehu enters the gate, she said, is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? She reminds Jehu of Zimri. He was a king, remember, back in 1 Kings 16. He came to power because he assassinated, he, was, he assassinated the king at the time named Elah. And his violent rule only lasted seven days until the people rebelled against him and they bur- he burned down his own house and he died in the fire. And Jezebel says, remember Zimri? Well, she has no one really on her side. And I was thinking, after the death of her husband, I think it's in Chronicles where you get the, the time frame. Uh, because when we go through Chronicles, a lot of it will be repetition because Chronicles is repeating from Kings. But I think it's, after, uh, it's in Chronicles where you get the time frame that after Ahab died, Jezebel lived another 14 years pampered and comfortable and maybe she thought she got away with her wickedness maybe she thought hey those around her thought she got away with it too and yet behind the scenes people can see through wickedness just give it some time people can see through it at least the people that have the eyes of God they can see through it and you had how, how do you know well when Jehu calls up who's on my side there were a few eunuchs waiting for this moment. I don't think they could have predicted this moment. Hey, I just, you know, I don't think they were sitting around. I hope one day a guy comes and he just yells out to the window, will you throw Jezebel out? I don't think they knew that. But I do think there was a part of their lives just wondering, when is she going to get hers? When is it going to end? And if these eunuchs had any connection to God at all, I wonder if they questioned, when is it going to be justice? How do people like this get away with this? If you haven't felt that yet, you will. Whether it's something happening in the world that's very unjust. You know, one of the things that's coming up in our recent times is how unjust men have treated women over the years. How men in authority and different places of authority, including the church, have mistreated you ladies. And there's a great backlash in our culture right now because there's been great sin committed. And I wonder how many of you ladies have sat back and have been abused, been taken advantage of, been spoken to in a way that doesn't reflect the love of God and have been misused and you know on and on the list goes that you've just been sitting back for years wondering I wonder when it's going to end it just doesn't seem right I think of the most popular one of men taking advantage of young ladies going to Hollywood in order to start their career I think of the inequities and pay scales 
with women and men in certain industries. I, I think of women being seen as objects. You know, it's the outgrowth of pornography, quite frankly. It's the sin within a person, but pornography just turns women into objects in this culture. You know, they, they don't value humanity. Uh, they value everything but humanity, and so our culture just creates, and if believers, if you're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, sin will overtake you, and your flesh will have the best of you, and you too will act in an abusive manner, or you too will say things you should never say. And, and I wonder how many of you, just in life in general, it doesn't even have to be what's popular, but in life in general, you look and you just wonder, why, why, isn't, why haven't they gotten theirs yet? I mean, the eunuchs, I, I, I don't know how this is all going down, but they had to be in a place where they could hear him call out. And I don't know if they've been looking out the window just hoping, who's going to save us? Who's going to, what man? Jezebel, 14 years, and she's just gotten worse. There, there are times where people, when, when they're not immediately dealt with, when, when sin isn't taken care of, when there's not an immediate connection, they just feel emboldened in their sin, and they get worse. They say, well, I'll never get caught. I got away with it. (laughs) Not so. Not with the Lord. Like David, we can look around and think, why, Lord? Why, God? Why do the ungodly seem to be getting away with everything? It's just not right. Psalm 74, verse 10, listen. Oh, God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? You ever feel like that? Psalm 94, verse 3. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? I mean, he doesn't even mix words. What are you thinking, David? Well, I'm sick and tired of seeing the wicked triumph. Tired of it. You know what that looks like on the other side of that coin? God, I live for you with my whole life, and this is my reward? The wicked, why do they get away with everything? It doesn't seem right. Now, I want you to turn to Psalm 73, Because in Psalm 73, I mean, this is really the essence of what we're speaking of. And here's Jezebel, perhaps convinced day after day, and week after week, month after month, year after year, she got away with it. She got away with it. She got away with it. But not true. She was close to a window by a couple guys that didn't like her very much. I mean, don't you think those guys had to have some kind of beef with her to throw her out the window? (laughs) Not so. Psalm 73. This Psalm of Asaph. I don't know about you, but it's hard to read through this Psalm and not feel for the brother. Not even see it in my own life. It starts out right, doesn't it? Truly, God is good to Israel. Can we get an amen for that? It's true. God is good to Israel. God is good to his people. He's good to those that follow him. He's good to such as pure in heart. But as for me, I see God being good in other places. But for me, my feet almost stumbled. And my steps had nearly slipped. Because I was envious of the boastful. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There's no pain in their death. Their strength is firm. They're not in trouble like other men. They're not plagued like other men. They get away with everything, the psalmist says. And pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. They have so much because their eyes bulge with abundance, verse 7. They have more than any heart could wish. They scoff. They speak wickedly. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens. Their tongue walks through the earth. And then notice, jump down in verse 13. 
Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain. You know what that sounds like today? Let me paraphrase it for you. Following God hasn't been worth it. That's what he's saying. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain. It's washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been plagued, verse 14, chastened every morning. If I had said, verse 15, I'll speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. And there are just those Jezebels in our lives that seem to get away with everything. Blaspheme, open ungodliness, they just seem to get away, but the problem with us is we lack understanding. And we don't know the whole story. And we forget so quickly that God is just and righteous. The proof of God's righteousness and justness is at the cross of Jesus Christ, where the pain and penalty and the, the, the full weight of all the judgment and wrath of God was paid for by Jesus Christ through his shed blood and affirmed through the resurrection. And yet, it's so easy for the Jezebels to get all of our attention. For 14 years, I believe she thought she got away with it. Just like Jeremiah thought in Jeremiah 12, verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk, about, let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? And why are those happy? Why are they so happy that deal treacherously? And just like the psalmist, it's too painful for me. I don't even want to think about it. And he's not innocent. We could do a whole different uh, examination of this psalm of where he's filled with pride and where he's wrong and where he's... But, but the essence of this is found in verse 17 because this is where it changes. He says, It was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. And then when I came to the place of worship and adoration... When I return to fixing my eyes on you, that's where understanding comes. You set them in slippery places. You cast them to destruction. They're brought to desolation. They're utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, you awake and you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, my mind was vexed because I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by your right hand. You'll guide me with your counsel, and afterward you'll receive me to glory. Whom do I have in heaven but you? There's none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen and amen, isn't it? I mean, it's so good. So good. He's so faithful. It's the right perspective. Why is it that you hang around a building on a corner of Hampton Biscay? Why is it you're here two times, three times, sometimes five, six times a week? Because there's something about a place dedicated to the worship of God where you gather together with other believers, one, two, hundreds or thousands, where you remember the faithfulness of God. You remember his goodness. You remember the fact that, hey, my flesh and my spirit fail, but you are the strength. You are my portion, God. I'm not alone in this world. You are faithful. You're surrounded by all kinds of testimonies here too of God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's strength. Something's just happened today. Something's happened yesterday. Something's happened two, three, five, ten years ago. And collectively we overcome him. How? By the word of our testimony in the blood of the Lamb. That's why we come together. 
That's why we tune in radio. That's why we have worship music playing. That's why we try to focus our hearts and our attention to keep our minds fixed on him. And Jezebel was thrown out a window and eaten by dogs because God keeps his promises and he fulfills his word. Now, I don't know why you guys are so excited about some gal getting eaten by dogs, but that's the way it is. Because I don't wish that on my enemies. You know what I wish on my enemies? That they would repent and get right with the Lord. That's the best thing for them. I, I wish they would just get right with the Lord, get back on track, and go out and do the work of the ministry until the Lord comes back. I don't wish that they, something, dogs eat them or any get thrown out of windows. I don't. It doesn't bring me any joy to have enemies, number one, but it doesn't bring me any joy to see any hurt come to them. What good will that bring? And while they rebel and repent and resist and they have no peace, no shalom, it's been robbed by them, by their own, and then their hearts get so hard. And I wonder how many more people will they hurt before they finally come to the place where they repent and say, it was all, it was all wrong. I come back. It's true for them. It's true for me. I would hope that someone's not praying that I fall out a window and, and uh, get eaten by dogs, but rather they would come to me and say, Ed, this is what I have against you. And I would be able to say, I'm so sorry. Let's make it right and move on for the kingdom. That's what Matthew 18 says. It'd just be better for us to do what God tells us to do for the sake of peace in the body. That we would just release any of those things that are holding us back from fruitfulness. Because I don't know about you, but I want the peace of God. I want the shalom of God in my life. I want to live in it. I want to enjoy it. I want to be a messenger of the peace of God. The Bible says that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation to bring together that which has been separated. That's God's heart. God's heart is forgiveness, the forsaking of sin. God's heart is restoration. God's heart is getting you back on track and doing something for you that you can't even think that God, you're going to do, what's the Bible say? Exceedingly abundantly above all that we can think or ask. That's what the will of the Lord is for you. And so, whatever's happening in your life, right now in this moment, as we close in prayer, just commit it to the Lord. And commit them to the Lord who judges righteously. Get your eyes back on Jesus because like Jezebel, their time will come. And that's truly not your heart. Your heart is, I'm sure, the heart of God that they get right with the Lord. Whether they need to be born again or they just need to repent, I need to get right for the Lord because in heaven, there's not going to be any of these things, you know. No problems in heaven. But now, as we walk in the wisdom of God, he can make our problems less and less and less. And whatever you do, absolutely, 100%, do not take vengeance into your own hands. That is the word of the Lord. Do good to those, pray for them, bless them, Do not exact your personal vengeance. Just give it to the Lord and get back on serving him. So Father, thank you for the truth of, of, you know, you you, uh, said that Jezebel was going to face this and she did exactly as you said. It happened. And Lord, we just pray that as we read here that the end of Jezebel would not be the end of other people, that you have given her years and years to repent. And I pray that that would be the work of your spirit among those in our lives. 
those that we might be at odds with, or really they're at odds with us, that they might just get back on track and go back to fruitfulness. Life happens so fast. And we just want to serve you, Lord. We just want to be in the place where joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control flow through our lives. So we commit this Bible study to you and difficult chapter, but rich in application, Lord. And I pray for our church. I pray for those that are reading the Bible and praying every day that even when they come to difficult chapters, that they wouldn't quit or give up but rather just look at a few verses and just spend some time meditating and thinking through that you might uh, show something to them that they didn't see before. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877 304 7223 or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.